The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Powell. Today's guest is an author who's literally written the book on creating great teams, is a regular keynote speaker and was an actual Olympian, who is now a leading expert in agile leadership and culture and has helped teams adopt holacracy. We hear a lot about those terms and how they can help businesses improve, but what do they really mean? How can they actually help business and who is using them? Well, we're lucky today to be joined by Sandy Mamoli from agile consultancy Nomad 8, who has worked with organisations all around the world, including local innovators TradeMe and Snapper, to help people work better. Welcome. Thanks for coming on board. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, so tell me about that background as an athlete and Olympian uh, in the sport of handball, which is not that well known here, but is huge in Europe. Yes, it actually is. And uh, I read somewhere it's the second biggest sports uh, in Europe and uh, about 20 million people play it. It's been Olympic since the uh, 1970s, and um, it's great fun, and uh, it's such a shame that it's not played in New Zealand. How do you play it? What, what's it? Um, give, give us the, the quick little rundown on handball, as it's, you probably always have to do with, with yeah, antipodeans. It's a surprisingly difficult question, because uh, what I really want to do is be on TV and play the video for you. But fundamentally, it's uh, two teams of seven people, indoor sports, and two goals. And uh, your aim is to put the goal into the other opponent's team's goal. It's uh, a mix of basketball and rugby, and uh, it's really fast, and it's really physical, and you get to push people over, and that's great fun. Right, so so basketball, like you bounce it and pass it to people yes. and go for a net. But rugby, like you actually, there's a bit of argy-bargy. Exactly, Yes. Wow, and so how? Like, um, and and so in the Olympics, how are the Olympics? <laughs> the Olympics are awesome, and uh, I think I was really lucky, and I also worked really hard to uh, in order to go there. Finished fifth, which was uh, so much better than ending up fourth, which I think must be a nightmare at the Olympics. But um, yeah, did it, and um, very happy about that. And what lessons did you, what, what have you taken out of being a high performance sports person and being in kind of a, an obviously very winning team culture environment that takes you all the way to the Olympics? And how did that feed into your career as a consultant? Funny you should ask that because I've been in denial for about 25 years and I have completely ignored that uh, I have a professional sports past. And then about two years ago, I started thinking about exactly that. It's like, well, 
I am who I am because uh, I did professional sports. And I think some of the main things I have learned is um, are that um, I know how to choose my team. And uh, the general guiding principle for me is that uh, I choose the team, the best team that will still accept me. I want to be the worst player on the best team that will still accept me. And the reason I want to do that is because the really good teams have the good coaches, uh, you normalize high performance, and uh, basically everyone else is really good, and you're not. And that's how you learn. And I have taken that into everything I do, like um, both the agile and um, organizational consulting jobs I have now. I try to work with people who are better than me. I have an international network where I can learn from other people. And um, I think that's one of the key things that I have learned. What that has also given me is, uh, like, if you're the worst person, it's not a fun place to be in. So I have learned how to deal with failure. And it's a funny thing because I think that um, in our professional sports, failure is completely natural and we use it as our fuel. There's nothing personal in it. And uh, it's actually a good thing. We care but we uh, use it as something that motivates us. Mm. Whereas in business, it's something that we try to avoid at work. People try to hide it. So I never got that. And um, so I could learn without fear. And I think that has been really useful for me. Isn't that interesting? Because in sports, you really do understand that some days you just don't win. Even the good people have a bad day or the calls can go against you or things. And it's it's really normalised that, you know, even... um, you know, vaunted champions will have um, will have off days, but yeah, that, that's so true that in business, like no one's no one's wanting to kind of go, um, yeah, I, I lost today. Yes, and you learn it's not a disaster. I mean, it feels horrible, and uh, you do want to dig yourself a tunnel to uh, get out of the court without being seen because it's embarrassing and really hurts. But you know that life goes on, and all you need to do is show up the next day again and keep going. Let's let's come back to kind of like um, teams and leadership culture because there's especially in um, you know uh, sports obsessed New Zealand it's a really um, wonderful kind of theme in business. Let's go back and kind of talk to how you became a consultant and got interested in agile and maybe and maybe we'll get into kind of like what agile means. The big question, mm. yes. I. I actually fell into uh, a coaching and consulting role because uh, I used to work in Europe in um, Stockholm, Copenhagen and Amsterdam with uh, Sony Ericsson with digital marketing in the early 2000s. And around 2002 or three, we started working in an agile way. And then in 2006, I moved to New Zealand. And I realized I had thought it was completely normal to work agile. It was uh, what I had basically grown up with professionally. It was um, something I thought everyone was doing. What I didn't realise at the time is was that um, Northern Europe uh, was actually way ahead of everyone else and what I thought was normal was actually not. So moving here, I thought, wow, I have seen another way of doing things and uh, I don't want to go back to doing things the old way and started creating pockets for myself. And um, those pockets were great and they were on a team level. And then I started creating pockets that were a bit bigger, that were like several teams. And I realized uh, the organization around us and the obstacles we ran into. And then my pockets became bigger and bigger until one, people started paying me for that. 
And um, secondly, my pockets became the size of Trade Me or Snapper, for example. So what does what does an agile uh, okay? So what are the agile processes, and what would an agile team look like compared to um, a non-agile team? And maybe if we look at like just a a, a team inside a company like a Trade Me. So the really important thing that you're saying is the word team, that uh, it is really team-based. And um, what is important in an agile team is that uh, this team is cross-functional and multi-skilled. And the basic idea is uh, you give a group of people a purpose that's really compelling, very much like a sports team. And um, w- and then you uh, create an environment where they can self-organize and uh, achieve that purpose or that goal together. And uh, the the process is uh, is important, but it's uh, different for each team. There's some starter kits such as Scrum and uh, practices people can use. But the really important part is the having a, a cross-functional team with a purpose that's self-organizing and um, figures out how to reach that goal. And uh, while doing that, realizing or accepting that we can't know everything up front, things change, um, there's complexity, so there's a certain amount of um, experimentation where we try something, get feedback, and adapt to that feedback. And that's basically in a nutshell. And in some businesses where it's very well adopted now, um, tech companies, for example, mm-hmm. where there are specific features to build or a specific problem to solve, there's high adoption. Is it something that applies across every industry? Like, do do kind of, you know... Um, I don't know, a team of accountants working on a um, an audit, are they able to use Agile in their processes or is it better suited to certain industries? There is a sweet spot because it comes out of technology, so that is relatively easy or let's say we know how to do it. What has happened in uh, the last five years, though, is that people have realized just because something has been invented in one area doesn't mean that uh, it can't be applicable in other areas. So what I see more and more is uh, actually other kind of businesses using Agile. And also within technology business, other functions using Agile, such as marketing or sales. And we have now taken that to um, what meant something that meant to be a, a team level agility to take it on a level of business agility, like entire businesses need to adapt to changing worlds and uh, complexity. So yeah, let's let's dig into a little more at the team level side of things because we've written this book, um, creating great teams, and um, that's a really interesting subject as well as um, when businesses grow. Uh, you know, in the early days, it's it's easy with a small team of people to communicate everything and make it work. And then once you get projects, there's kind of ideal sizes of teams. But then you might have lots of people that want to do lots of different things and you have to tell people what to do. But your book is really interesting because it talks about the idea of self-selection of people being able to choose the projects that they work on. So what what is a kind of like ideal team size and how does it go about if people can choose whatever they want to do in a business? Ideal team size, we say, is uh, seven plus minus two people. And the reason the teams are relatively small is so that you can still talk to each other um, without uh, having cliques or without having to write too much documentation. So we're basically trying to emulate that startup world, the olden days when it was just us in a little garage and uh, we could all talk to each other. And... Um, so that's the team size, and uh, we have um, 
in the past kind of figured out how those teams can work together. That's a, a known, really, really hard, but it's a known problem. And at some point, um, we realised that nobody has thought about the problem how to actually get into those teams. And uh, it's always been management selection where someone goes, you, you and you should be in that team, you, you and you in that other team. And um, we were, at the time, my friend David Moll and I were at Trade Me and had this problem that we had uh, around 300 people we needed to get into teams. And that's when we realised that why are we actually telling other people which team to work with? Because people do their best work if they can choose what they work on and who they work with. So we um, came up with this method to uh, make it safe for people to choose which team they wanted to work in. And uh, it has worked really well at Trade Me, and that's five years ago. And uh, since then, we have shared how to do it. And lots of companies from all over the world has, have tried it too. That's um, an interesting thought that people choose what they work on. I guess the common questions would be, how do you make sure that, you know, um, you don't end up with six engineers and no, you know, testers or no project managers. And and how do you uh, make sure that people don't just pick to work on the fun stuff and then no one's doing the plumbing, you know? <laughs> um, it's a great question. And, uh, and I think pretty much everyone has those questions. Mm. We're, we're those questions we're asking ourselves too, like, uh, oh, my God. And um, the magic word is constraints. This is not just about what you want to do. This is about taking a big problem or puzzle and uh, instead of having managers solving it, we have the people who are affect, affected solve it. And uh, constraints are the constraints we usually have is um, you need to be able to deliver to your purpose. So six, in, six uh, testers or six business analysts probably won't if it's a software development team. Um, so you, uh, there's a team size constraint between uh, five and nine people. There's a constraint of uh, you need to deliver to purpose and uh, also do what's best for your company. So um, if there is one team that's uh, amazing but you can't fill the other teams, that's not what's best for your company. So we ask you to solve the entire problem and not just do what you feel like doing. Quite interesting that you um, pass across, uh, you, you know, kind of share amongst all the people what's been traditionally management's problem, which is make people, you know, do the best thing for the company <laughs> uh, and, and not think first of kind of the individual people. Yes, and uh, I think really good companies manage to do that well and uh, they have a purpose and people are, are engaged in a way that they want to help the company achieve that purpose. And uh, I find it fascinating to have people who don't just go to work and think of themselves, but um, know about the bigger picture and why they're doing something. And it's a balance. There's something in it for the company, but also something for the individual, because we all want to go to work and feel fulfilled and mm. feel we're doing something meaningful, I think. And so has that, um, with a few years of experience at Trade Me and doing it in companies, does it make people feel more empowered and connected to the mission and satisfied? It does. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, the good thing about writing a book is that uh, now people know about me and David, so they let us know. Uh, we get emails from all over the world uh, how people, how it went, how people feel about it. And um, what's interesting is how different groups react differently. Like um, you have people who are my age, like really old people. <laughs> it's not true. You can't, you can't see listeners here, but it's not true at all, yes. But uh, 
my generation and people over 30 in general, they are used to management selection. So they think this is amazing. They're really grateful in general. I think this is a privilege. Whereas you have graduates coming out of uni and uh, it's their first job and they think this is completely normal. Mm. And um, in a way, this is also what I want, that it's this is the normal way of uh, letting people to choose how to work. And so this kind of concept of Agile has been extremely um, influential in the world, as you're saying, going right up to kind of uh, top-level decision-making, the, the idea of breaking a problem into lots of little bits and getting teams to um, chew it off. Uh, and a huge part of the success of the teams that I've seen working well in Agile seems to be constant and high-quality communication, daily meetings, um, as you go, very clearly at the beginning, setting out what success looks like and what you know the um, you know is and isn't acceptable out of the project, and then having high quality retrospectives at the end of each um, time period that you choose to go back and look at everything in a no fault way as to whether it worked or not. And th- those concepts, which work at the team of seven level, um, also work at a organisation of five hundred level. Yes, and the concepts work and uh, it's really hard to, be, to communicate between the 500 hundred of us. So we need to have different ways of communicating. And um, I said earlier on, we're trying to emulate the old, old startup days. So um, making those groups smaller and uh, instead of having individuals just communicating or being responsible for communicating across everything, we now have bigger units. So it's um, less complexity if we have uh, 40 teams instead of um, 500 people trying to figure something out. And uh, that's actually something where uh, things like uh, holacracy come in because that is the connection or the glue between teams and uh, around how information can flow between teams. So um, it is um, the same principles around, uh, yes, communication and a clear and strong purpose. But when you take it into uh, lots and lots and lots of people, then uh, communication gets harder and uh, the actual uh, methods or ways of doing that might change, whereas the principles remain the same. Okay, so let's go, let's go right back to kind of like, how would you define holacracy to someone that's heard it or seen it on like a LinkedIn post but may not be <laughs> able to explain it? Yeah. First of all, apologies about uh, the silly language, and uh, I hate the language around holacracy. It's uh, really stilted and annoying. But fundamentally, it's... Um, all, all work is done in teams, and uh, those teams are called circles. And um, the uh, circles are connected to each other, and very often in hierarchy. And the hierarchy looks something like uh, there is a big circle, which is the entire organisation, and within that circle there are sub-circles. And the top circle, parent circle, gives the child circle its purpose, and that can trigger all the way down and across so every single circle within an organisation supports uh, the parent's circle, circle's purpose, goes all the way up to the organisation's purpose. So in the end, what you get is a hierarchy of purpose and not people, which I think is a really important distinction. And um, the circles are connected in a way that um, there is downstream uh, information flow but also a way of linking back up. So there's a representative of each child circle that is a member of the parent circle who has full voting rights and uh, is a full member of that team. It's a bit like a union representative who Mm -hmm. can make sure nothing damaging is done to the child circle, anything that slows them down. 
or moves them away from their purpose. And um, fundamentally, that's it. You take um, things onto an organisational level and um, you don't look that, or holacracy has nothing to say around how things work within the team. That's where Agile is really useful. And in some contexts, probably even uh, waterfalls or different ways of working. Right. So the, the waterfalls you mentioned there are when people at the top just tell people below them what to do, uh, the kind of traditional um, kind, kind of um, leadership there. That sounds, um, I guess, to people that aren't used to working in a way like a holacracy, it sounds like a lot of time would be spent with people in different circles trying to agree things. Um, but if it's all tied to a common purpose, does that mean that there's kind of an external set of decision-making um, attributes so you can choose whether the decision's right or not for the company or the purpose and that makes it quicker? Yeah, that makes it quicker because you have those constraints. You uh, you have a domain within which you can, you're free to make decisions. But there's also um, something that's really important around decision-making because this is, you're right, it could take ages if everything has to be decided by consensus. Mm. Everyone has to agree, and um, Holacracy has introduced decision-making by consent, which basically means uh, instead of everyone having to agree, it's uh, one person making a proposal, so I propose we do this, and unless someone else in that circle objects, we move ahead. And uh, objecting, you can't just object going, oh, I don't like this. It needs to be a valid objection, meaning something that is um, that moves us away the circle away from achieving its purpose or it's not safe to try. But if it's safe to try and moves us probably in the right direction, we err on the side of action. And we also know that uh, if it doesn't work, we can still change it the next time because it's safe to try. And although this sounds like quite a confusing kind of diagrammatic model, it's happening, <laughs> isn't it? It's being yes. used in, in companies <laughs> small and large and you helped roll out this kind of... Um, process at Snapper, a, um, yes. you know, for people who aren't in Wellington, a, a very large, um, uh, well-run tech company that uh, provides kind of um, cards that get you on and off the bus and stuff like that, that work in the, the shops and the like. So gr- great, great company. How did it go um, rolling it out across a company like that? And, you, you know, are some people maybe sitting more on the sceptical, oh, I don't want to be doing everything by consent, consensus mm-hmm. thing. And some people are more like, oh, wow, I'm so glad that I get to take part in decisions. In the beginning, there were lots of people who were sceptical, including leadership, including me, uh, because it sounds really convoluted and uh, complicated and the language is kind of annoying. But we tried it out with an open mind and uh, there was a problem we wanted to solve and that was that Snapper had grown over the years. They have been agile since 2010 and um, then eight years later, there were many teams, but things were starting to fall through the cracks. It was the communication between teams and also the question like, could we grow by 20 people without either descending into chaos or turning into a bureaucracy? And we thought that holacracy could be a good alternative to look into. And um, we just decided to try it with a completely open mind. Some people, highly sceptical. Some people did not like the language or how complicated it was. But we made an agreement to defer judgment and uh, run a real experiment. After about three, four, five months, we knew it was the right thing for us. And um, it was a pretty big learning curve and uh, it wasn't always fun. But 
talking to people, they say it was absolutely worth it. And personally, looking back, I think that was actually easier than adding uh, or um, yeah, adding Agile to the company. And I think the reason for that is that um, if a team turns Agile, it's really pervasive. Mm. It changes how you work on a daily basis. Everything changes for you. Your job really changes. Oh, yeah. You've got a heartbeat oh. meeting every morning where you have to say what you accomplished yesterday. And you've got to have something to show every day. It's a very, um, it's a, it's a very open working way. Yes, you're much closer to your to your peers, and uh, yeah, it's really open, and uh, yeah, it changes what you do on a daily basis. Holacracy doesn't. Um, that is uh, a, a thing that's on top of Agile, so it's not every day, every minute of your life, and I think that's probably why it was easier. And I wonder, does it help to flush out people who aren't aligned to a company's purpose? Because if purpose is the kind of defining um, link between everything and every team and every person has to be uh, to the purpose, the kind of people who go, I'm just coming to work to eat my lunch, I don't care about purpose, they're probably not going to have a huge ability to deal with it. But it might be a way for them to get on board or get off board. Yes, yeah, exactly. And uh, I haven't seen it because um, Snapper are, I think, roughly 60 people and um, they have uh, a really good culture and people are really passionate about public transport. So I haven't seen anyone uh, react like that, but I think that is exactly what could happen, that you flush out people who don't care that much about the purpose. And it's actually good because um, there is enough work to go around at the moment, especially in our fields that people can find other companies where they do believe in the purpose. Mm-hmm. And that idea of purpose where it's in business, you know, sometimes, you know, people who are sceptical about that might go, oh, well, you know, I, I don't care, just, you know, make the widgets or whatever. But in other areas uh, like sports, it's really pervasive, isn't it, having a, um, a team culture aligned to a purpose and to a set of values and, and that being really vital for, say, the All Blacks or the Crusaders or great, great teams that everyone knows in New Zealand. Um, Another thing that's interesting about that is the link between kind of team culture and company culture around, you know, the winners being on the field. Tell me about kind of, um, yeah, the the links between that kind of sports culture and company culture. There's one big difference, and that is sports is a serious game. I either win or lose, whereas in a company we can all win and um, that's actually a really, really good thing. What I found was a really good link between those two was uh, that if you're a professional athlete, the, you learn how to work with diversity, how to um, work with people you don't necessarily understand, who you don't necessarily like, um, because it really is uh, people are chosen by merit. And even if I don't like you, if you're the best left wing in the world, I want to play with you. And um, I think this is also something that is really important for um, teams, for work teams. And um, I think we could learn a lot there. And it's only possible in professional sports, I believe, because the purpose is so strong that we can um, ignore all those differences and go, right, but we want to achieve this. So uh, let's focus on values and how we interact and make this really explicit. Basically, don't be a dick and uh, communicate in a certain way. And those things are um, something that I think we need to learn in our professional teams and also in our organisations. And uh, that's something where I think there is a strong link 
but sports is actually ahead and we could learn mm. from uh, real teams. And, and some great leading companies in the kind of culture space like Netflix have the idea of it being like a team. And I think for a lot of small companies where it's been almost like a family, uh, the change to being yes. a team is different because with a family, you can't kick your uncle out if he's not performing. <laughs> but with a sports team, you can, you know, and it's about it's about what's best for the team that you continue to earn your place um, and, and contribute as opposed to a family where, you know, you're kind of stuck yes. with them. Yes, and I think I'm actually glad that um, work life is a bit less brutal than sports because in sports you really kick people out and, um, well, you know, if you don't make the team, well, you're out and uh, choose there, a different career. And there, there might be room in kind of back office or in helping the next generation <laughs> or being, you know, d- doing the sausage sizzle. There's, there's roles if you're not on the field. That's true, and uh, I totally support that. They're a substitute. Mm. I just feel a bit bad about people if they really are on the street and struggling to make uh, mm. ends meet. But overall, yes, I think um, if you really are not good enough, then there is no place for you. But we can help you become good enough if you uh, do have the will to learn, if you have a growth mindset, uh, and if you are... Uh, learn how to play with the other kids and uh, how to deal with failure, which is necessary in order to learn and succeed. And as a consultant working with Nomad 8 and as an author and a, and a speaker, um, you, you, you're very much your own uh, brand and, and entrepreneur as well. What, what advice do you give to entrepreneurs when they're starting out? I think all... My advice is basically you don't need to have the big plan. I think all you need to have is uh, one or two clients and uh, that can set you off. Have work for the next three months and um, then everything else is going to be fine, I believe. So don't worry too much about it. Don't fear. And uh, if you've got a starting point, just go for it. And do you have any words you live by are there any kind of things you come back to when things get tough or uh words you like to kind of come back to well based on what i just said like kind of inspiring myself (laughs) (laughs) i think i'm guided by uh what would you do if you had no fear and uh trying to live my life basically not guided by fear and how do you define success for Myself, it's um, if I have things to do, if I have things to do that are interesting, that inspire me, that uh, I look forward to doing and uh, are challenging me and where I learn, then I'm happy. Uh, the basics need to be covered. Like I don't want to worry about uh, where I get money for food from. But once that's covered, it's about challenging. It's about learning and trying new things, having the opportunity to try new things that nobody else has tried before. Ah, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Sandy Mamoli, for coming and sharing your story today. You can check out Sandy's book, Creating Great Teams, and find her at Nomad 8 as an agile and leadership and culture consultant. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much to Tina and Alice for producing, and thank you very much for listening. If you have enjoyed today's chat, have a look through the back catalogue. There's more than 100 interviews with great business people in New Zealand. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation.
from the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.